This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show British military veteran, conservationist, and the subject of the documentary Wildcat, Harry Turner. Now, in this incredibly powerful conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Harry's early life, his journey into the military, the PTSD that he brought home from Afghanistan, his mental health struggle, his trip to Peru, the making of the documentary, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, Please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Harry Turner. Enjoy. Well, Harry, I want to start by saying two things. Firstly, thank you to John from Silver Spear for connecting us. And secondly, to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thank you very much, James. It's, uh, I just was on a podcast uh, the other day with John. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy kind of like meeting new people just via this, this kind of like networking. So it's great. How did your paths cross in the first place, yours and John's? So I believe that he he watched the documentary, reached out to me and said, look, like I, I watched the film, loved it, um, 
do you mind coming on the podcast? And I jumped on the podcast with him and then uh, he was doing a tour with Shinedown and uh, he said, we're going to be over in Spokane. And because I've just recently bought a house here in Washington State, he was like, if you if you can get there, great. Like, come and hang out with the band and come and hang out with me. And so I went over there with my wife and he gave her a, a bunch of tequila <laughs> and I had to drive home <laughs> as always. Um, but yeah, we met then and then just kept in touch and yeah, he's just a super great guy and he's got a lot of really cool stories and, uh, you know, his, his background is very complicated and there's just like so much kind of depth into him that it's just kind of like a, a book that just keeps on kind of giving, you know? Yeah. And he is, I mean, when, when I reached out, it was about something else as a, a musician called Jelly Roll, who just did a an amazing speech in D.C. about addiction and the fentanyl crisis. And uh, I reached out to him knowing he's well embedded in the music industry to see if he had any connections. But in our conversation, he's like, well, I know someone who you need to get on the show. And it was you. So here we are. It's a very generous man. Yeah, um, so you mentioned uh, Washington. Is that where we're finding you now? Yes, so I'm over in the Pacific Northwest. Um, originally grew up in the UK, as you can tell from my accent. And uh, I I kind of moved over to the US a few years ago. I got married last year. So I'm in actually the process of my green card at the minute, which is taking a very long time. Um, it's just kind of one of the things you just got to kind of roll with the punches with it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, annoying and stressful just kind of being in limbo with uh the u.s kind of government but at the same time you know i want to be settling my roots in in the pacific northwest here with my wife and uh with my non-profit we're going to be doing a lot of stuff down in ecuador and so it's you know it's a good place to kind of be i can be in north america and super close to south america as well beautiful yeah i i came to the u.s in 2002 um, and yes, my application took a lot longer. Um, you know, I don't think people realize how expensive it is. So when there's a lot of demonization of the illegal immigration, you know, we came from a pretty affluent country when you compare the entire world. But to to come here and jump through all the hoops, you need a lot of money, you need sponsors and all these kind of things. So it's understandable if you are in Haiti or Mexico or somewhere and are just desperate, you know, it gives you a little bit more compassion. Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean that we should open our borders. However, it does give you some compassion when you've been through it, coming from a great foundation to the fact that it would be almost impossible if you were from a, a poorer nation. Oh, absolutely. And I can only imagine coming in 2002 with, you know, the disaster which happened in 2001 with the US, that application must have taken three or four times longer than than usual. The, the issue that I'm finding right now with my visa is that post pandemic is people are still catching up in in the system. And so you know, whereas before it could have been, you know, 12 to 14 months waiting and then you might have, you know, to go in for a few interviews and meetings. Like I'm coming up on 12 months now and I have zero idea. I don't have a work visa. I don't have a travel visa. Like I'm, I'm honestly, you know, stuck here for the time being. And so, yeah, I'm just playing it day by day and uh, just getting through it, you know. Well, we're going to get into your mental health journey, but just to jump ahead while we're talking about now, it's funny, the the one thing that the pandemic did 
whatever people's perspective and you know i mean that to me the middle ground is is where the truth is you know it was a real virus um but it was also reliant on the health or ill health of the people on on how we you know fared with that virus but what ended up happening was a loss of autonomy a lot of people were told to stay in their homes you know the places where they would healthily decompress were closed down um and there is a, a real um, stress from the loss of autonomy that can be very detrimental to our mental health. Now you find yourself in this immigration kind of, uh, you know, middle space. Has that had any kind of negative effect that you can't just pack up and, and pursue the things that you want to pursue at the moment? My mental health has definitely been affected um, in this kind of phase of limbo, but ultimately I'm trapped in a country which has so much diversity. And for me, um, one of my main passions growing up and, and, and everything was, was reptiles and amphibians. I love snakes. I love lizards. I love frogs. You know, like that was like my thing. So being in the US, I can go anywhere really and find cool animals. And uh, I know that you're in Florida now. I was just uh, in Florida uh, at the end of last year. And uh, which was only a month and a half ago. <laughs> but um, the end of last year, I was there and I was um, with one of my friends down there. I've been there a few times now and I was helping out with different camera trap projects and just, you know, just went down there. And, you know, I had that freedom to because I was still in the US. Um, and, you know, I've got some great friends in Arizona and I go down to Arizona as well. So I get these breaks away from. Uh, you know, the kind of like hustle and bustle of the city. I'm, I'm a little bit further north than Seattle, but still I'm I'm in like there's traffic and there's, you know, fireworks going off and there's, you know, all these different things. And so I do to some degree feel a little bit trapped here, but at the same time I have the mountains super close by. In summer there's some incredible hikes and there's some, you know, just incredible scenery around here. And I'm making a good connection with like some some good people here and friendship groups and and uh, it definitely has been a little bit tricky here making friends. I'm you know a Brit that basically loves animals more than people and I love being outdoors a lot more than you know the majority of these Seahawks and Mariners fans. You know it's like a it's one of these things where like I, it is a tricky kind of thing to try and make friends at, a, you know, I'm 30 years old, uh, with just, you know, kind of newer people. Um, but I'm fortunate that my wife and, you know, she's, she has a very good friend group here and a very good family unit here. And so becoming and, you know, having fun with these friends and, and some of these people, it, it's, it's been, it's been fairly easy. Um, but I am very fortunate with, being in the US, being able to travel to different states and see different landscapes and animals and, and meeting incredible people. I can relate to that. When we were, well, when I, you know, I was back home younger, I never had a football team. You know, I'd support the England team, of course, every, you know, two and four years. But, um, you know, growing up, I saw the mob mentality of the 80s and, you know, a lot of the, the negative sides. So I just, I love playing footy. You know, I was a sportsman, but I never really got into the whole watching and so in the uk with football and in here with baseball basketball um american football 
you know, if that's the topic of conversation, I'm, you know, I'm kind of out, <laughs> you know, oh, I'm going to check yeah, out. <laughs> so, so it's interesting, you know, you, you, when you're finding your tribe, when you're finding that group and you had a tribe, obviously in, in the UK military, and we'll get into that, but it's finding the right kind of people. And this is what's been so amazing about this podcast is when I have conversations with people like you and John and other great humans, they're so nurturing. Whereas if you talk about a football game and, you know, that's absolutely fine if that's your thing and that's your decompression. But, you know, at the end of it, you've talked about someone else playing a sport when you've learned from, you know, a mental health practitioner or a soldier or, you know, whoever it is, you, you've kind of learned a little bit, you've grown a little bit. So that's kind of what I found myself leaning towards. And it can be someone who's never delved deeper than that before. But if I do engage in someone you know, I don't want to talk politics. I don't want to talk sports. I want to learn about who they are. And, you know, when people open up, it's it's incredible the stories that human beings have if they can get past that kind of distraction that's kind of, you know, put in front of our eyes. Absolutely. No, I agree. And there's, you know, you see, you, you should never judge a book by its cover, especially with people, because you never know what they've gone through. You never know the stories that they have. And I found, you know, when I have gone to Florida or Arizona and we've been around a fire and it's been like a long day and we've, you know, been hiking all day, like some of the true stories really come out and you really like, even though you think you know somebody, you really don't until you've kind of like had a serious deep conversation with them, sat around a fire, you know, shared a meal together, just, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, uh, the human mind is pretty incredible. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the UK. So let's start at the very beginning of your timeline then. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah, so um, I was born in Portsmouth uh, in 1993. Um, I was there because my dad was in the Navy. And so uh, about six months into my life, we moved all the way up to Scotland. And then we was in a naval base in Helensburgh. Um, and that's where my sister was born. And so it was me and my sister for the first 13 years of growing up. My dad had kind of like, you know, gone to the Gulf War and done a few other different bits and pieces. And then after 12 years of service, he decided to leave the Navy and then we moved down to Essex. Uh, and that's where my brother was born. And uh, so we're kind of all dotted about the place. Um, and, and yeah, so I've got my brother and sister, um, my mum and dad are still together, still happily married. I honestly don't know a couple, which is kind of as happy as them. Maybe because my mum wears the trousers and he just says, yes, like that's probably just how it goes. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I grew up in Essex. I spent a lot of my kind of like teen, uh, teen life in Essex and, you know, the skateboarding, the the smoking weed, the kind of getting the fake ID and going to nightclubs and pubs before I was old enough. Um, and I, I just, I just didn't know what I really wanted to do with my life. I hated school. I, I just couldn't get on with the education system. I uh, found myself kind of like, itching to just always be outside but you know I was trapped in a classroom and so therefore I became the class clown and was always in trouble and was always getting detentions and um and then so when I left school I you know got a job in working in a kitchen I've always I love cooking and I've always kind of cooked and 
And I just thought, like, what am I, what am I doing with my life? Like, how am I going to, you know, look back in 20, 30 years and be like, oh, I'm proud of what I did. And at that moment in time, I couldn't think of anything. So my dad kind of said to me, like, Harry, you, you know, you're getting a little bit older. You're going to be 18 in the next, you know, kind of six, seven months or whatever. Um, what are you planning on doing? Because, you know, when you're 18, you're old enough to vote. You're old enough to do this. You're you're going to have to figure it out. I said, I just have zero idea. I don't know what I want to do with my life. I, I have hobbies and I have passions, but I'm not really like, I, I don't really know how to like make that a career or make money from it, especially in the UK. And he said, just join the Navy. Like, that's what I did. And I was like, I'm not fucking gay. Like, I'm not joining the Navy. And he was, you know, How did he take that? <laughs> I've always kind of joked with him. And, you know, he was on the submarines with a bunch of men. I'm like, you must have got bored at some point. And you're like, come on. <laughs> um, you know, and we joked about it. And, and he goes, yeah, it's okay. Like, the Navy's obviously not for everybody. And and so I was talking to my mum the next day. And I was just like, no, I, dad was talking to me about this. I hadn't really thought about it. I don't know what to do. She goes, well, you don't have to join the Navy. You could join the Marines or you could join, you know, the Army or the Air Force. Like, if that's what you want to do, like, you could do that. And so the next day we went to the um, the kind of like, uh, it was kind of like a shopping center and they had like a military kind of sign up for the Army there. And I just went in and just spoke to someone and they're like, yeah, join up. And I was like, okay, I guess. Like... I had no idea. And so they said, come back in in a week, you do a test and then we can figure out, you know, how clever you are and what jobs you can do. And it's called the barb test. And so I went in and I did this barb test and I, I got a list of like 120 jobs that I could do. And there was like things in there like dog handler and, you know, chef and mechanic and all these different things. And I was like, no, I just want to, I want to be an infantryman. I just want to, I want to be on the front line. That's it. Like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And like naive 17 year old Harry Turner was just like, you know, go out there and, and just kind of like, I don't know, make your country proud. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. And so I did a few tests, physical training tests and, you know, other things like that. And they said, right, you're going to go off to basic training September 4th. And I was like, okay and my birthday September 2nd so I was like I get to spend my 18th birthday with family and friends and then that's it you know so I had my 18th birthday packed my bags the next day on the 4th I went to IC, ITC Catterick and um, spent six months in training there which was honestly like some of the hardest training I've ever done. I did it from, you know, September all the way through March. And so there's some very cold months, especially up in North Yorkshire. And just, you know, bayonet training by like smashing ice with your elbows and you're just crawling through ice water for like, it felt like a very long time, but um, it was a hard training. And then I got out of training and, I went into my battalion and I spent two weeks in my battalion and then I was shipped off to Afghanistan and I spent, you know, another six months there. So that whole year of turning 18 and be, becoming 19, 
being, you know, a nobody to, you know, being broken down to them being sent off to Afghanistan as a battle casualty replacement. I basically just went there to, to replace someone who was either injured or dead and then spending time there at 18 years old and then coming back. It like, I, I never, ever cried in Afghanistan. I never got upset in Afghanistan. I saw some horrific stuff, but I never emotionally felt like I had to express that, like I had to release, release the pressure or something. And then as soon as I got back and, and work was kind of just like, oh, we don't really know what we're doing anymore. Like go back to your rooms and go play on your Playstations or, you know, drink your life away, go do whatever you want. And I was just the four or five months I just had no purpose and my head was just going and going and going and I was thinking about all the stuff I'd seen I was not sleeping I was drinking excessively I was just I was getting super super sick and uh yeah I uh I kind of broke down I just lost it and uh I only did one tour and I you know I know a lot of people have done a lot more and a lot of people will say to me, like, oh, you did one tour. Like, you're, that's, you know, you, you did it. Like, you're, you're good. But, like, I felt like I just hadn't completed what I should have completed. I didn't do my four years, you know. After I got medically discharged, it was, like, more like three years and a few months. And so, for me, like, I felt like I'd failed. I felt like I went to Afghanistan and failed. Even though I came back alive, I felt like a failure. And I felt like I was letting all the people in my battalion down because I, I was just mentally not there. And then I felt like I was letting my family down because I was just like this kind of like sad excuse as a human that kind of went to war. And, you know, I didn't see a great deal of stuff, but the stuff I did see really tortured me. And, um, and yeah, I just felt like a massive failure. And uh, just, I don't know, just I just didn't want to live anymore. I want to go back to early life and then obviously we'll get to you know your homecoming and the struggles which is you know not um, uncommon whatsoever but while we're in the early life still and the reason i ask this as i interview more and more and more people i become more educated and we're at almost 900 interviews now and i realize that first responders military a lot of us in uniform have some some you know maybe a lot of trauma prior to us ever putting the uniform on that we don't think about so if you know as as you kind of very briefly touched on in, in a documentary you know there was some some scenes that you witnessed that were extremely traumatic while you were in uniform um but that is built on the foundation of what you brought through the through the door now you mentioned that your you know your parents are happily married when you look back now with this kind of older wiser lens were there any elements of your early life that you think contributed to your struggles later I, yeah, I do. Um, my grandma was like a huge inspiration to me. And uh, she was a huge kind of like religious person, a very godly person, went to church all the time. And, you know, was always talking to us about you know, believing in God and, and all these things. And uh, she, I guess she was like my rock, you know, I loved her to pieces. She's my mum's mum. And uh, so she was married uh, to an Irishman and uh, my, my grandparents were like, I loved them to pieces. And my grandma got extremely sick with, you know, several forms of cam cancer. And uh, 
and just died rapidly. Like I remember seeing her and then seeing her like six weeks later and she was like half the weight she was. And my face was just unrecognizable, like hair falling out, like couldn't recognize her. And it was, it was awful. And um, I remember just like thinking if there's a God and this woman truly believed there's a God, where the hell are you? Because this is sick, you know. And all this crap with like, oh, God works in mysterious ways and all that. Yeah, maybe maybe he does. Like, maybe if there is a God. You know, I personally don't believe in God. I believe that there's more of a spiritual thing and I'm more of a scientist, so I kind of more believe in evolution. And then uh, uh, that that was just like awful. And then like a year later, my granddad passed away from cancer as well. And so my mum went from having, you know, two kids and both her parents to having three kids and no parents. And it was just like this horrible kind of like traumatic time where I wasn't sure, like whilst I was kind of becoming more of a teenager, what was kind of like hormonal and what was kind of like, uh, I guess just awful life, you know, just, just be just existing and what was kind of like, I just didn't know what was normal. Um, and I think that that's about it really. Like I look back with wiser eyes and think that I put a lot of pressure on myself as well to have a relationship like my parents. And, um, I just don't think it's normal. I, I've never seen them fight. And I think they've had like one argument in their life. And to someone like me, who is very kind of, um, I'm very precise and exact with a lot of the things I do. Um, I wouldn't really necessarily call it like OCD or anything like that, but I'm definitely, you know, a little bit there on the spectrum. Um, and uh, seeing people be so happy and then, you know, getting in your first relationship and then having your first argument and you're like, oh, no, no, this is not the person for me because we had one argument and it was, you know, five minutes long. No, no. <laughs> This isn't right. My parents didn't do it, so I shouldn't do it. And I look back on that, and I just think, you know, that's that's uh, that's not a healthy way to kind of look at it. Um, but I uh, last year got a therapist. Um, first time in my life I'd ever spoke to anybody about some of the stuff I'd done, and we've been talking about pre-war and post-war. And what were my kind of like issues and triggers and what were my issues and triggers afterwards? And before you go into the military, you don't have a test done to see whether you have PTSD of any kind. You just get chucked in the deep end. And then when you come out of it and they say, oh, you know, you got some similar traits to PTSD, but you know, like you just, you just as a little bit depressed, you know, get out. I'm trying to, you know, I'm talking to my therapist now, trying to figure out, did I have some of these issues before going to war? And have they just been heightened, tweaked and made worse because of war? So that now I struggle with complex PTSD? Or, you know, was I a normal somewhat kid going through hormonal changes, and then I went to war and then I came back and was completely, you know, messed up. But because we don't have the data and the kind of like information to show previous, I'm trying to work through 
what I was like before that. And I definitely have um, some issues. Um, obviously, I am way better off than a lot of people in this world. But I definitely did struggle slightly before the military. And then obviously, afterwards, I struggled severely with mental health, self-harming, suicide attempts, um, and just daily struggles of, um, I guess, just not feeling like I'm, I should be part of this world. Firstly, it's an interesting perspective when you have parents who have an incredible relationship, because I've never thought of it in reverse. You know, there's a lot of people out there that thought their extremely toxic family that they grew up in was normal. And that ended up being their baseline that they ultimately had to stop that domino from falling and they didn't pass it on to their children too. But when you happen to be born into a great family, and obviously we get glimpses of your parents in the film too, I'd never thought of it that way. That sets you up for this is what it should look like. And, you know, for anyone, <laughs> anyone who has not fallen in love with their childhood sweetheart and then married them and be happily married, it is a, you know, a montage of good and bad experiences, you know, relationships that last a day, some last, you know, five years, but, you know, we're all chasing that one, but that only exists for a few people. Sometimes it takes us, you know, multiple people to finally find the person and my second marriage is my soulmate and that was i met her at 38 so um but uh but yeah but also when i when i think about what you've told me you know the the feeling trapped in school you know the classroom isn't the right fit for everyone and then even your transition into the military and i'm curious if this is how it felt you create this tribe you're training with you know, the men and women that you got, you know, um, recruited with and that became your your battalion. And then you get plucked out and put into somewhere else as a replacement. So you almost kind of lost your tribe in that element too. Did that factor in at all? Did you feel um, like you didn't belong initially when you found yourself overseas in a different unit? As I was the young looking, blue eyed, blonde haired kid that kind of like got chucked out there it was definitely hard. You know, I, I was, I was in a battalion with people who had been on tour before people who were a lot older, a lot more experienced. And, um, you know, I, I have my fair share of crude jokes, but once you kind of get with some of these kind of more weathered and worn people, you really start to be like, wow, like I am, nothing like these people and so going from training where i had you know a, where i had a, a group of maybe 25 30 people um that i spent six months with i you know i i still talk to a lot of them a lot of them are, are great friends of mine a few of them are still in a few of them got out after a few years um I became very close with them people because I had to, you know, I was going to bed at one in the morning and waking up at five in the morning. And I was with these guys every single day. And then when we got to a point in training where we were actually able to leave, you know, the base, we would go out and we would go drinking and we would, you know, go paintballing together and we would do everything together. I think I went home in training like three times in six months. And that was because Christmas, and that was because um, I can't even remember what it was, but like it was just because I I didn't have to go home and I didn't. 
And so I was with these guys constantly. And then in training, we were training for infantry, but not for battalion. So then we get picked out of our, you know, we get to choose, okay, do you want to go to this battalion, this battalion? And, you know, okay, there's enough space for this person, this person. So I, you know, chose the 1st Royal Anglian Regiment. And only about three of the people who I was in training with went over with me. And then when I was there, my battalion had already, the day that I got there, they were packing. And then three days later, they'd flown to Afghanistan. And so I had to stay back to do the required training for two weeks before I could fly out to Afghanistan. Then I had to do more training in Afghanistan with random people. Then I had to become, you know, part of this battalion where we're brothers, we have each other's backs, we, you know, would do anything for them. I had no idea who they were. How are they going to trust me to save their life if that really came down to it? And how are they going to, you know allow the trust of me and it, it it was a it was a really kind of like difficult time and being 18 and and being kind of like this young i i was i i looked young i was young mentally i was naive like all of these different kind of things like i went out there and i was just very shocked about kind of what predicament i'd got myself in I found myself often thinking, like, if I had have done the barb test again and chose one of these different professions, would I be in a different, you know, state of mind right now? So I want to ask you about the deployment. And uh, the way I phrase it really is because, and it's not so bad in the UK, I don't think, but certainly out here in America, on on the media, we get a very polarized view of war. It's either very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out or a very anti-war, they're all baby killers, and in the middle are literally, in this case, the children that we send overseas wearing our flag on their, their shoulder. Um, so, you know, it's getting their actual perspective, boots on the ground's perspective. And it's a two-part question. The first part, regardless of the politics that sent you to Afghanistan specifically, was there a point where you witnessed some horrors that you realized there were some horrific people that needed to be addressed? That's a good question. Uh, yes, I did. Probably within the first like five days of being there. Um, this, is a, this is a hard question. Um, I went out there because I was made to go out there. Obviously, I joined the infantry to do a job. But when I was out there, I didn't really understand what we were out there for. And my job in Afghanistan was to work with the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police to train them to work better together and to understand kind of like groupings and, you know, patrols and communications between others so that then when the British and the US armies left Afghanistan, they were able to to go about their lives as if we were still there, but, you know, with more of a kind of like slower pace because, you know, Taliban were retaliating to issues with, you know, foreign militaries and, and I guess like it was one of these things where when we were there, we were trying to do good. 
But ultimately, like, when I was there, I was like, why am I here? I have, I have no idea what I'm doing here. And I remember we were teaching um, people how to use an AK-47 as if they didn't already know how to use an AK-47. But it was, you know, we were on the firing range and we were looking at kind of like groupings and we were looking at kind of like ways that you could kind of fire a weapon and make sure it was safe for somebody and cover and all these different things. And uh, one guy just turned around with his AK and just pointed it straight in my face and was saying something that I couldn't understand. And uh, I was like, what? you know, am I going to die? Like, I had no idea. I'm trying to teach these people what to do. And I'm literally staring down the barrel. And then chaos breaks loose and everything kind of like is just kind of like jumbled up but because people are just like trying to figure out what's going on. And then the translator later on at dinner after we'd kind of settled it was like, oh, yeah, he, uh, he's, he's Taliban. He just wants to know what we're trying to train everybody. And everyone was like, what? Like, so we're teaching the Taliban what we're meant to be teaching the Afghan National Army so that then we can send them out so they already know what's going to happen. So that then what? Like, why, why are we here? What are we doing? You know, and then no one said shit. Like, people were just like, oh, well, you know, they'll figure it out themselves, you know. And it was kind of one of these things where it was like, and like, I'm not talking badly on the British military. I'm not talking badly on the, you know, Afghan military or the police. But it was just a lot of people in one place not understanding what their role was, me included, and people just wanting to be that hero. And a lot of people in the military out there were just wanting, you know, kind of like kill counts and just wanting kind of to feel like they can do something illegal legally. And it didn't sit very right with me. I've heard that from quite a few people. And obviously, and I'm going to get to the, the other side of the coin, you know, there is a lot that our men and women did in uniform, you know, that, that did make a difference, that did add security and, and put put water back in towns and, and reopen schools and those kind of things. But there's a lot of them that said we would just cycle. You know, you get up, you do your patrol, you come back, you get it. And they've never felt like there was a kind of, you know, a plan, like what is the exit strategy? Um, and then that you add in obviously the, uh, the um, mass exodus of Afghanistan and now all these people that serve that did so much, some left, you know, physical health there, you know, lost limbs, some left their mental health there, some left, you know, their men and women deceased there. And then we pull out and then, you know, you add to that mental health question. But I think as people are starting to unpack some of these conflicts now, I'm hearing more and more Afghanistan, you know, Iraq, these veterans saying, usually at the beginning, yeah, we were doing good. But then why did we stay and stay and stay and stay? Now, again, this is a firefighter talking. I am completely you know, outside the circle looking in, but hearing these same kind of conversations over and over again, these are coming from our men and women that were out there in these countries. Yeah, and it's, I also, you know, as just one person have kind of witnessed this and I've also spoken to a few people who I was in Afghanistan with about similar things. And so it's, you know, 
is a very recurring kind of conversation and also probably one of the main reasons why my mental health really did deteriorate is because uh, I felt like I was part of like a huge mass murder and I was just another number put into this kind of thing where it was like kill 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 let's just go for it and let's just you know I, I felt responsible for not the deaths of the bad people but the deaths of collateral damage and people who didn't deserve it and people who were just living their lives and you know the kids throwing rocks at the mastiffs and everything like that it was like these little shits are throwing rocks at us and la 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 but what would i have done at age 10 or 11 if if a different country had come over to the uk and were killing people like my uncle and great uncle and cousins and you know didn't give a crap and they were just rolling through in big tanks and trucks and would just kind of like i would have done the same i would have thrown rocks at them so looking back on it you know i was like i feel i feel terrible i feel sorry for these innocent people and uh yeah a lot of my trauma is because of the kids well i mean firstly that's humanity you know i mean you should care and this is the thing this is it there shouldn't be shame in that thought now are you thinking about that in the middle of a gunfight of course not you're trying to you know protect your own people and get home safe but you know, when you have that afterthought, absolutely. And I've had many veterans on here that have been in tears talking about some of the collateral damage, some of the innocents that were killed, you know, during some of the conflicts that they were around. Um, but then there's also the organizational betrayal. There's an element of trust. If you are going to join a fire department, a police department, a military branch, that the people above you are going to make the right decisions and minimize, hopefully, the time of the conflict, minimize the collateral damage. And then, you know, that doesn't happen. Now, you know, you, you're kind of, it's kind of a bait and switch then. You've got these men and women that signed up for the absolute right reasons, went out there for the right reasons. And then on occasion, you know, they're asked to do the wrong things, you know, and the things, this is a reoccurring theme in Afghanistan specifically. A lot of the special forces guys I had on here were like, we should have gone in primarily with special forces, taken out the uh, training camps, taken out the key targets and then left again, you know, and even I've had Afghanis on here. They're like, you were doing amazing things. And then Iraq happened and it got diluted. You all went there instead. Taliban got stronger. And then we ended up staying there for decades. So again, firefighter that knows almost nothing about this, but when I hear the same reoccurring thing, now you bring these men and women home and they get to ruminate on what they did. This is one of the reasons why I think it haunts so many of our veterans. I, I definitely agree with that 100%. Well, the other side of the question is kindness and compassion, something we also don't really see on our screens. So in those those six months that you're out there, whether it is from your own soldiers or the indigenous people that you were there to help protect, what were moments of kindness and compassion that you remember? Um, I remember that there was, we was on a patrol and... Um, I can't really remember exactly what happened, but I remember that we were kind of like trapped. Radio signal was a little bit bad and we were kind of like in an area where we were like, I don't really know what we're doing here. 
something's wrong, I know that something's wrong. And this Afghani opened his doors and was basically like, come in. You have a place to stay, you have shelter. And I remember sitting on the floor, surrounded by bowls of rice and bowls of different kind of foods and breads. And we took our shoes off and we went in and, you know, we were like, what the hell are we doing here? And we took our like gloves off and we were just eating with our hands, with our legs crossed or on the floor with this family. And we had no idea who they were. And they just wanted to make sure that we were safe and that we were all right. And then um, I, so I'm writing my book at the minute and um, we'll get probably onto that in a little bit. But whilst writing my book, I have been kind of going back to times of Afghanistan, to times of Khan, Keanu, even, you know, growing up, I'm kind of doing an autobiography, but with some, you know, some of the stories that I've done. And um, it doesn't really fall under your question of kind of like kindness and compassion. But I remember going out one day and uh, I was on top cover of the Mastiff. There was, there had been an explosion and it was like three in the morning and we'd had, to, we had to go out. And so we went out and I had the night vision on and I remember just kind of pulling up to this area and seeing people running off with like limbs. And I remember like looking into the dirt and it was kind of blood stained and there was like fingers and toes and whatever, you know, I could try and picture. I, I can't even, it was so messed up that I didn't know what I was looking at. And so we're kind of like in this between two mud walls in this mastiff and I'm looking about and I'm like, where the hell are these people going? I don't know if I'm going to get shot at because I'm at the top. Like I have no idea. So the decision was made to turn back and come back when it was light. And so we got back and I remember just like laying on my cot bed, just shaking because I was like, what are we going to go back to tomorrow? And we went back and uh, there was rocks piled on top of each other. And um, it's a way that the kind of kids in Afghanistan let other people know that there's an explosion or an explosive in the area. And they put these rocks out as kind of like a, a warning. And I remember pulling up and seeing these rocks piled up and piled up on each side because I was on the top cover again. And we get to this area where we had just turned around and there was blood stained sand everywhere. And um, I'm just absolutely petrified. I'm like, these people have been here. I just saw them running away. Are they still in hiding? What is going on? And then all of a sudden, I'm just like reflecting on my life. Am I going to see my family again? Like all these things running through my head. And this kingfisher just flies up and just lands like on the wall. And I don't know what species it was. It had like oranges and blues and whites and like, it was just like this beacon of hope, you know, and it just changed my mood completely. And, and in my book, I talk a lot about my, my mental health and how animals and how nature have healed in many ways. And people underestimate the beauty of Afghanistan. It is an absolutely incredible and beautiful country. And I would go there happily again, just to see the beauty of it again. And this moment of Kingfisher 
calmed my nerves, calmed my anxiety, calmed everything. The team got out and they did, you know, their sweep, just checking if there was any more explosions anywhere. There was not. The people who were trying to bury the IED had blown themselves up trying to place it to kill us. It was something along the lines of like a five or six kilogram explosive that would have easily shot the tire of a mastiff, you know, 200 feet. Like it was a big explosion. And um, just the surrounding and the natural beauty and everything just changed my whole viewpoint of that one experience. Going from death, destruction, anxiety-ridden, like horrible feeling to then one animal and that was it amazing well i want to get to that part of your journey but before we do when you reflect how embedded were you in nature um and did you have any pets growing up prior to even entering the military yeah growing up i um always wanted a snake that was like one thing that I always wanted. Mum and dad were like, no, we'll compromise and we'll get you a hamster. So I named the hamster Snakey because I was like this. You know, <laughs> There's an irony for that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I was like, still want a snake. And they're like, let's get some rabbits. And I'm like, oh. And, you know, we had a dog as well and cats. And, and uh, I remember when I got my first snake, I was just like over the moon. Just like a, a red rat snake, a corn snake, you know, what you have in Florida. And, um, and yeah, so I, I kind of grew up, and I was actually talking about this with my, with my neighbor. I walk uh, our dogs in, in the back of the forest where I live, and we were talking about, you know, because I grew up in naval bases, was there, like, any forests and stuff that I could kind of escape to? And, you know, there were. There were kind of, like, wooded areas that we could go to, and we would walk the dogs. And living in Scotland for seven years, there were mountains, and just, like, it was, it was really beautiful. But I never really like, and because I was so young, I had to kind of obviously do what mum and dad were doing. So I never really like, I never really kind of like went into nature just alone. But when I moved to Essex, I got into trouble all the time with my parents because they'll be like, right, you've got to be back at this time. You can't go to the forest. You can't do this. And I would go to the forest every single time. I would ride my bike. I'd go to the park and I'd go over the little like BMX tracks and I would just wander in the forest. And I, re I remember when I was younger, mum was like, Harry, don't go to the forest. You've got to be back in like an hour for dinner. Do not go into the forest. Da, 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 da. And I went into the forest, climbed this tree, fell out of this tree and landed on this like broken branch. And it went straight into my back, like kind of like my lower back. And there was blood and it, like, I had a snapped part of kind of stick in my back and on the walk home, I found this feather and I picked it up and I was like, how am I going to tell mom? Like, what am I going to do? Like, do I lie? Do I not? And I went back and I was like, well, I found this feather in a tree. And so I climbed it and I fell out. She was like, you're so full of shit. And I was like, oh, <laughs> damn. Like, she's like, I told you not to go to the forest. But every moment I could, I was trying to get to nature as much as I could. Um, and so... I think it was just natural for me to try and kind of get to a, I don't know, I, I guess it was just natural for me to just want to be outdoors, but becoming a teenager and becoming kind of like 
conscious of the fact that I needed a career and I needed money and I needed these things, it kind of like stopped me from going to nature until I went. So let's talk about then. You come back from Afghanistan, kind of lead me through that downward spiral that you found yourself before you ended up deciding to go to Peru. Yeah, um, I came back and was ruminating about everything that I had seen and done and I was drinking heavily and my nightmares, my nightmares were becoming, um, you know, awful. I, I remember having to listen to this one album from Radiohead, the, um, the Benz, and I just had to listen to it on repeat because that was the only album I found that would help me go to sleep. And it was the kind of like, I don't even know how to call the noises, but it's like the, it's like the reverberation kind of sounds in that album really like helped me kind of like calm down. And I would listen to that on repeat and repeat and repeat because I needed to do something to help me sleep and the alcohol wasn't helping. And um, I was not really, I didn't really have a purpose because we'd come back from Operic 16 and, and we, didn't really have any kind of goals in sight. We were just on in the barracks and we were just having to keep fit and, you know, just in case, like we might have to go back in, you know, a year or two years or whatever, like we're going to continue to do classes and lessons and we'd go to the firing range every now and again. But I started like just losing my mind and I started thinking about suicide and I started thinking about self-harming and, and uh, and uh, I just was getting so heavily intoxicated that these um, these kind of like thoughts became like what ifs, you know? What if I did kill myself? I wasn't just thinking like, oh, you know, go hang yourself. It was like, how would I hang myself? Where would I hang myself? How would I hang myself? in a way that wouldn't upset my family members or friends. And uh, then all my friends that, you know, my brothers that I was in the military with were just drinking and having fun. And, and, and in my head, I was thinking, how are these guys okay? Like, I just, what's wrong with me? And so I, I, uh, I was packing to go um, on like a week long exercise and uh, I had everything kind of like scattered out in my room. I needed to take, you know, I needed to take my first aid kit and I needed to take, you know, my waterproof notebooks and different socks and talcum powders and underwear and I needed to take this and this and this and I'm just like looking at everything on the ground and I was just like, just, I was like, I don't want to fucking be here. Like, I really don't want to go on this exercise. I'm not in a good headspace. I can't do this. And so I went to my, um, I think I went to my corporal at the time and was like, look, I'm really not doing good. Like, who do I go and see? I don't know who to talk to. I don't know what to do. And he said, how about you go to... Um, how about you go and speak to the Padre? And I was like, okay. So I went and spoke to this 
this guy and he was like, you know, do you believe in God? And I was like, fuck no, like my grandma died and I really like don't believe in God. Like this sucks. Like I just got back from Afghanistan and if you believe that there's a God, then something's wrong because like, no, I don't. And he's like, okay, um, you know, how are things going? I was like, I am not doing good. Like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to go home. I don't know where I want to be. I can't sleep. I have no appetite. I'm drinking so much vodka just to try and help myself. Like I, um, I'm lost and he goes, right. I think you need to go see, like, I need, I think you need to go get like an examination done in the medical office. And so I went to the medical office and, uh, I was just sat there for hours. Nobody spoke to me. Nobody came out. And I was like, fuck this. I don't want to be here. Like this is, this is done. And so I left and I went back to the padre. I said, I went there for hours and nobody saw me. Nobody spoke to me. Like, I know that I'm not the only person in this world, but like, that was just pure disrespect. Like, I don't want to be here. I'm going to, I'm going to go home. And he goes, you can't go home. You need to get a, a letter to go home and you need to go through this process. And so he said, I'll go with you. So the next day he goes with me and we sit there and I go in and they go, so what are you, you know, what are you thinking about? And I was like, I don't know, like suicide? And they're like, okay, um, have you attempted suicide? No. Okay, well, what are you doing to kind of like get over that? And I was like, what do you mean get over it? Like I have no idea. Like what kind of questions are these? And I just remember getting so angry. And I was like, are you, are you joking me? Like I'm here asking for help and you're basically just like questioning me as if I'm like, a suspect in a murder or something like what the and I was just like this is absolutely ridiculous I was like give me a note so I can go home because I'm not doing this exercise I don't want to be here la, la, la. and they were like well have you thought about suicide and I was like absolutely and so they wrote me a note saying you know private Turner has thought about suicide he should not be able to use or be anywhere near a weapon and so when we would go on exercise and when we would go out running with all of our equipment, they gave me this wooden gun, like a wooden kind of like cutout of like a SA-80 assault rifle. And I had to hold this wooden piece of just cut out kind of like plywood whilst everyone was running. They're like, why the fuck are you holding that? Why are you, why are you holding that piece of wood? And I was like, because I told them that I was depressed and then they basically like have shunned me and they've told me I'm not allowed to use a weapon even though there's no ammunition there's no nothing we have um basically screw this kind of like yellow cap onto the end of the rifle you know so that when you do have blanks just in case someone messes them up it would you know not kill anybody and I just got made fun of like this young kid who can't hand, who can't hack it is now running about in, in the field with, you know, everyone who he was on tour with, with a wooden uh, cutout of an assault rifle. And I was like, you know what? And I went to, um, I went to my Sergeant major at the time. And I, and I just said to him, I was like, you can keep the wooden cutout. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not until you can like, figure out how to deal with mental health and until you can figure out, you know, and he felt awful. I'm, I'm still talking to him. He's a, he's a great guy, but he felt awful. And he said, look, here we go. Here's a note, go home for a month, 
do what you need to do with family, with friends, like you'll still get paid, go back. And when you come back, hopefully you're refreshed a little bit and we can kind of like talk about medical discharge or we can talk about something like that. And so I went home and got drunk every single day. I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, was, I don't know. I didn't have a purpose yet again, still. And so I was just at home, just struggling, living under a roof with my parents, which, um, you know, after you've left home and then you're forced to go back into home with your parents, even though they love you unconditionally and you love them and you are grateful and thankful for everything they've ever done for you in your whole life, it's not the same. I'd been to war. I was struggling. Mum and dad were like, Harry, dinner's ready. And I'm like, no, I can't do this. Like, this is, I love you guys, but please, like, I can't just be, like, I can't come back into this setting and be normal and be okay. And so I wasn't. And so I went back and I got medically discharged and um, it took a very long time. And as soon as I got medically discharged, they said, it's not, P you don't have PTSD, you, um, you have recurrent depression uh, because they asked me about my grandma uh, and they said, oh yeah, you were depressed back then. So this is just part of it. You know, it's just, it's just recurrent, you know, like I was like, I thought recurring like happened multiple times. Like I was young, my grandma died. I got upset. I told you about it and now you're using it against me. Like I just don't get it. And so anyway, they, they discharged me. I had a little bit of money in my account and I just, I just was like, I need to kill myself and I don't know how to do it. So I Googled, um, volunteer work in the Amazon rainforest. I found a place called Fauna Forever. Uh, they had a reptile and amphibian program. I said, I'm going to go there and I'm going to kill myself. My mom and dad and brother and sister will think that, it was an accident from either a venomous snake or a tree fall or, you know, just being in a dangerous country. Nobody in my family had ever been to South America before me and uh, booked a, a ticket, sold as much things as I could, and, uh, and I went there and I had the intention to commit suicide. So talk to me about what happened when you got there then. So, you, you know, you've grown up in the, the, the UK then you go to Afghanistan for war, you come back to the UK, now you find yourself in a Peruvian rainforest. So what were the, you know, what were the, the following weeks and months like for you and how did that shift that suicide ideation? So in my uh, anger and complete uh, mental block that I had, I had just, you know, blinds on, I... Uh, I booked this trip with the intention not to return. Even I bought a return flight because I didn't want it to look suspicious. If I was just going to go there, you know, I, I need, I wanted to make it look as if like I was actually kind of like trying to figure myself out. And when I landed after a 30 hour trip, um, from the UK, I then, you know, had to go to, uh, think I went to the US and then down from the US I stopped in Colombia and then I landed in Lima and then I had a flight from Lima to Puerto which is like the jungle kind of town 
took me about 30 something hours to get to Puerto. And I get there and I get out and I'm wearing like black jeans and like a black t-shirt with a black hoodie. And I have my like military duffel bag filled with kind of clothes and, you know, some essentials that I thought that I might be needing. And uh, I had no idea what they were saying. I didn't even know they spoke Spanish. And then I was like looking in my wallet and I was like, I have British pounds on me. What currency do they use here? Like, how am I meant to pay for a taxi? I have no, I literally no idea. And I look, and I was looking through my emails because I'd screenshotted on my phone some emails because I didn't have um, internet roaming for international. And I think I was with like Orange at the time. And I'm like looking and I'm like, okay, so I, I'm meant to meet somebody here, but I have no idea who this person is. And I'm surrounded by Peruvians who are all like, you know, tiny little people just rushing about, grabbing their bags, speaking Spanish at a thousand miles an hour, doing this, doing this, taxi, 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 yeah, taxi. And I'm like, what have I done? Like, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing here. And then out of the kind of like combination of like Hispanic people, this like white girl just walks towards me and goes, you're Harry? And I was like, thank God. Yeah, yeah, I'm Harry. She was like, oh, okay, I'm Zoe. And I was like, hi, Zoe. Like, uh, what do you do here? And she's like, well, I'm like the volunteer intern and, you know, I'm helping you get from A to B and you're going to be going up river in about two days, but there's been some rain. So we're not sure if you're going to be going up. And, and then I get to this place and I drop my bags off and everyone, and I'm just alone in this house and the police come and the police are like, there's been five missing people, da, 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 da. You know, your volunteer group was here and I'm just in my shorts, first day being there, not knowing what these people are saying in Spanish. I, you know, was bit, someone was there translating. And I was like, I don't know anything about these missing people. Like, I've just landed. I have no idea. Well, the week before I landed there, there was a group that went out and they rushed back to go and see a football match. And there was a tree fall. So they went around it and got lost for like three days in the forest. So I go to this place and then they're like, there's police everywhere and they're doing all this. And, and then I'm like, dude, this is, I don't know what I'm doing. This is absolutely chaos. I have no idea. It was raining constantly. They said, oh, you're going to go up tomorrow. So I packed all my bags. Oh, no, it's too much rain. You're going to go up the next day. I packed my bags. Okay, like we can go. And it took like seven hours to drive to this boat. And then on this boat, we were in the rain all the way up. And all of my stuff was soaked. I was like, oh, man, like, what am I doing? Like, right, eat some food, figure it out, figure out how you're going to kill yourself over the next few days and just do it. Just get it done with. Like, there's people being lost everywhere. You don't know what language they speak. Like, it's going to be very easy for you to kill yourself. That's, that's it, right? So... Next morning, I wake up and the dreams I had were just absolutely nuts. You're in a place with no Wi-Fi, with no nothing. The sounds of the jungle are everywhere. There's a little bit of electricity from a generator that you can charge your stuff, but they turn it off. 
I meet a few people there and I go out and I catch some snakes and I'm going out and doing bird surveys and I see my first ever monkey and I see my first, you know, ever toucan and I see my first ever macaws and I'm just like, okay, right, yeah, okay, tomorrow you're going to kill yourself. And I was just like, I see my first ever fertilance and it's like five and a half, six foot, this, this venomous viper, like this snake is just absolutely gorgeous. And I'm like, God damn, like I, I grew up with a corn snake. Like this is just blowing my mind. And then I'm finding all these different vipers and all these different things. And I'm seeing all these different monkeys and they're coming down to like just eat these fruits in these trees. And, and I'm just like surrounded by nothing but nature and people in like-minded conditions and, and views, right? And uh, every morning, you're going to kill yourself. Today, 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 you're going to kill yourself. And then I went out fishing on one Sunday and uh, went out fishing, caught a bunch of fish. We were going to come high come back and we were going to, you know, fry it up and we we're going to eat it with rice and salad and, you know, and I'd caught my first big catfish in the Amazon and I was just like, you know, this is cool. I'm going to eat this. Like, this is what I, this, you know, I'm not going to bloody Tesco and, and buying fish out of like a fridge. I'm catching it in the, in the river and I'm eating it. And on the way back, there's like macaws flying everywhere. And, and then the sun starts to go down and the bats, start taking place of the birds and the sun is reflecting on the river and the boat engine is in the back and we're just kind of like slowly just going up river and I'm just sat on the boat with like my boots just kind of like dangling over the edge and I just thought why do you want to kill yourself you have a family at home that loves you you have like everything that you could possibly ever need you're struggling you're sad like why do you want to kill yourself your little brother at the time i think he was like eight or nine at the time your little brother is gonna miss you and your parents are gonna think what they did wrong and your sister is gonna cry for days and your friends are going to wonder what happened. And, and I just, I just remember like thinking like, why do you want to kill yourself? You know, like I had this like epiphany and it was just like on the front of the boat. And I just was like, I don't know. I just, I just went back and I ate the fish that I caught and I charged my lights and I went on a hike and I found some cool animals and I was just like, you'll be all right. And then two, I spent another two weeks in the jungle and every day I just loved life. I just loved waking up and I just loved walking and I just loved the rain and I loved the food and I loved the people there and I loved like the colors seem colorful again and the smells smelt smelly and the just I just could hear again. And I could, like, I don't know, the grey had just lifted from me. After two weeks of being in the jungle, 14 days of being in the jungle. And so I was like, you're going to go home? 
and you're going to spend time with your family and you're going to get a job outdoors and you're going to go do whatever you want. Go to music festivals, go to this, go to that, whatever. And so I did. You know, I went home. I didn't kill myself. I went home. I didn't even try to after them 14 days. I went back and, you know, I started doing bits and pieces and I... I got a job on a farm and I went to a festival called Sonosphere and, and during that festival I saw Alice in Chains and Mastodon and Metallica and just saw like some incredible bands and was getting paid and was living, you know, like a, a really awesome summer and uh, just was, I don't know, just living my life. And then winter came again and I hadn't been in nature for a while. And uh, and it started slowly getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's when I, I tried to hang myself. And then after that failed, um, it was a really shitty attempt. I, you know, you, I, I guess if you've ever been so depressed, you think that something will, will help. And then when you look back on it, you're like, that was so fucking dumb. Like... Why did you even try and attempt suicide in that way? And uh, I was like, you know what? I, I'm selling everything. I'm, I sold my car. I sold my shoes. I sold my TV. I sold absolutely everything. And I said, I'm going to the jungle. I'm not going to come back. So I did. Um, you know, I saved up all of the money that I could potentially save up before my flight. I flew to Peru and that's kind of like when, you know, I went back to the same river that I had had my epiphany on and, uh, and then that's kind of where filming started for my documentary. I didn't mean for it to be a documentary, you know, I just was filming because I was, uh, living like this incredible life. So as, you know, we start seeing you through the film, you know, you obviously it's you and Sam there together. Um, and then you come across an SLR called Khan. So walk me through again the element of healing that you found through bonding with with a, a cat. Yeah, so uh I kind of was there and this ocelot needed help, you know, it was taken from its mother, whether the mother was killed or whether it was just kind of found in a tree that they'd cut down. And um, and they were going to take it to sell it for more money because you could sell an ocelot for more than what the tree's worth, honestly. And uh, we argued for like seven hours, forwards and backwards. And, you know, these Peruvian guys had machetes and shotguns and they were like, we're not giving you this cat. And I'm like, I don't... I, don't want this cat. This cat needs help. If you take it on this road and you take it back, it's going to die. You're not going to get any money for it. You're not going to get anything for it. They said, buy it off me, $250. I was like, dude, if I had $250, I would consider it, but I do not have $250. And I'm a white guy. If I am seen buying a, a wild, you know, exotic animal, from you guys, I'm fueling a, a fire, which is just never, ever going to be put out. And uh, I was like, I'm, ne I'm not buying it from you. Like, I'm going to argue with you and I'm going to try to educate you. And I'm going to say, look, I think that this is going to be a better idea. And so I bought them dinner. Instead of 
paying for the animal, I bought them dinner and said, look, you've spent time and money bringing this cat down. I understand living a life is not easy. Um, here's some food. Let's eat and let's talk about it. And, uh, and I took this tiny two and a half week old ocelot back and I remember like laying in my hammock and just had him kind of like on my shoulder and he was just kind of like he was so sick you know his his stomach was bloated with parasites and he was just like really lethargic and so I gave him some uh some kind of like antiparasitical medicine with very, very, very small doses because he was so young, his eyes weren't even open, you know, like ocelots usually, as as most kittens do, they usually open their eyes after two and a bit weeks and then they start to kind of like, they have very blue eyes and they, they can visually see it like about a month and a bit. So his eyes weren't even open, like he was like sick, so I'm giving him these small doses and I'm giving him milk uh, and I'm like, you know, just sleeping with him and making sure he's resting and just, uh, he was so young, I had to like get a, a, a piece of wet tissue and, and like basically like rub his penis with it so that he would pee because his mum would usually stimulate him to pee so that he wasn't just peeing over everything, you know, in the fallen tree or, or wherever he would have been born. And so, and I, and I, and I knew this because, you know, growing up we had, you know, animals, but I didn't know this from like a wild standpoint and all these things. And so after he came back, I was thinking, who can we give this ocelot to, you know, cause I, I didn't know anything about it. A few years ago, I was going to kill myself because I was lost and now I'm in the jungle and I'm finding myself in this predicament where I have this baby ocelot, and I'm like, what do I do with it? I'm going to go home soon, and, I'm, and I was like, why are you going to go home? What do you possibly have in England which is even cooler than this? Like, And I'm not like saying it's cool as in like it's a pet. I fought to save this animal's life, and now what am I going to do? Just give it to someone that it might go to a zoo? And I was like, no, like I, I have to see this through. And, um, and so... I was like, I'm going to message a few people, see if they have any kind of like information and all this. And I just was like, I'm doing this. And I I was like, I'm not going home. I'm going to stay here. And then me and Khan are just going to, we're just going to live our lives. And that, and, and that was the start of the Khan project. Now, the, the goal was to, to get him to a point, not where he was domesticated, but to actually get him prepared to be a wild wildcat again. Yeah, that's right. The The goal was for him to become so independent that he would be able to go off and fend for himself in the wild. He would be able to hunt for himself. He would be able to survive. He would, he, he would be scared enough of humans that he wouldn't come close to anyone other than myself. And he would just be free where he belonged and... That was it, you know, like we wanted him to become just this wild cat. Um, and I did absolutely everything in my power to make sure that he became wild. I became nocturnal to some point. I lived alone for months and months. 
I walked every single night, whether I was, you know, sick or whether I was injured or whatever. I walked and I hunted. I learned how to trap animals without using a weapon. I had a little air rifle that I would shoot rats with if they're in my kitchen. I made a slingshot so that I could like slingshot birds out of like the trees. I was hunting for him and sharing everything with him and spending every hour of waking day with him and teaching him what were the dangers of the forest and what were uh, edible and what was, you know, and, and, and in turn, he was teaching me so much. Like, I learned so much from this cat. I can't even... He taught me so much and it wasn't just teaching me how to love myself again or love anything again it was teaching me about the rainforest it was teaching me about sounds it was teaching me about direction navigation like he really put me on a path to success um obviously until well let's let's go there but i mean when when I was watching it, and I'll preface this, I posted a video this morning that moved me so much that I was in tears the whole fucking time. I was trying to do the text that went with it, trying to put the subtitles on and make sure that they lined up. And it was a young man with Down syndrome going to his mother's gravesite to tell her that he just graduated. And I'm actually welling up now just thinking about it. Yeah. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And then I watch your film, and then I watch the bond that you have with Khan and it was just, it was beautiful, you know, and it just, I mean, I showed you my dog right before we hit record. Like I had a German shepherd prior to her and, and I have this little one now, but when there's that bond between a human and an animal like that, whether it's a horse, uh, you know, an ocelot, a dog, you, you can't even put it into words, but the film captured it so beautifully. When you're both lying there on, on the forest floor and you kind of send him off to go chase, I forget what it was now, you see that. So at that point, we realized just how beautiful a relationship that is. So talk to me about what did happen next with Khan specifically. Yeah, so I um, was fairly confident that he was getting to a point in his life where he was going to be able to go off and start hunting and and doing everything you know he was going off for hours and hours every single night and coming back with a full belly and i was watching him and helping him catch rodents and you know he was uh catching some small caiman and i was teaching him all these things and we got to a point of where it was like right he's going to be a year old soon like i'm really excited for the next four months because it means he's going to start becoming this cat that I have worked so hard to get I, to get him to this point you know like I, I've worked and I've exhausted myself and I've I've been in this country illegally because I've missed my kind of exit time and and everything was like dependent on Khan like and he had to be successful whether it was going to take another six months or another two years, I was going to ensure that he was going to be a wild cat. And um, uh, one night um, we were just walking and someone had set up a, uh, 
a uh, it was like a poacher's trap, like a sawn-off shotgun, and um, he triggered it and just uh, he didn't die instantly, but um, it blew his like right arm off, and uh, I did everything I could to save his life. And uh, he just uh, just bled out, and um, he wasn't he wasn't able to survive. And uh, yeah, he um, he was killed by the greed of uh, humanity. You could just see the pain through the film, and obviously we're seeing it again raw, and I'm sure that's never going to go away. Um, when we're on this subject for a second, talk to me about that through the Peruvian's lens, because I, I just watched a documentary on Brazil and some of the indigenous tribes that are being, in some cases, murdered You know, as they're logging and, and deforestation, uh, the deforestation is happening. What were you seeing around your area specifically? Um, a lot of deforestation, it's more selective logging. People would, uh, go in and cut down huge, huge ironwood trees, which would be homes to hundreds and hundreds of animals, whether it be from the smallest insect to one of the largest birds of prey to, you know, ocelot kittens and, you know, just plants and fauna and flora. And like they would go in and they would kill anything they'd kill monkeys to eat them they would kill snakes out of fear they would cut down uh cut down these trees and cut them up and take them down river and sell them uh and when they're doing their thing they're setting up shot shotgun traps or they're going out on the river and they're shooting different animals just to eat and um they're you know, in hindsight, I feel sorry for them because their government and their life and their, and their lives um, are are hard because they are trying to feed their families. Um, they're trying to just put food on their plates and they're trying to provide for their families. And every tree that they cut down, you know, they probably get like a hundred dollars, and it's like six six weeks work that they'll go away for, and then they come back and they might make like a few hundred dollars in that time. And, you know, in Peruvian solace, that's nothing, really. And uh, they would just, um, yeah, they would just take over the forest and just cut down trees and kill animals. And, and uh, yeah, just, just try and survive, I guess. Um, but obviously that meant killing innocent lives and uh and um that mean khan as well well and this is the you know the other side of the story i mean i've talked about the um somalian pirates a few times i don't have people that were you know in anti-piracy and all those kind of things and you look at the origin story that's an overfishing of somalian um you know 
oceans, basically, that are then causing the fishermen to have less and less to bring. And there's, you know, poverty and starvation, and they turn to, to crime. And you see that in a lot of these other areas. And, you know, a lot of times we're responsible. The UK, the US, Australia, I mean, the places that are receiving the goods, you know, we, uh, you know, we're, we're the, the customer of a lot of these things. So, you know, I think it's, it's a conversation that we need to be made constantly aware of is our impact in other countries. Speaking of impact, I lost my older German shepherd um, just over a year ago now, and it absolutely fucking devastated me. I mean, I've been a firefighter for 14 years and she was, she was my Khan at that point, you know, but, uh, and even though she got to like 10 and a half, it was still young. She was very, very healthy. And, you know, and a shepherd is normally, you know, can live up to 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, and it just, it knocked me sideways. And I actually happened to have my younger one. I overlapped, um, deliberately, but, uh, it was absolutely brutal. So, you know, you pour your heart and soul into this beautiful cat. All of a sudden it's taken literally, you know, the, the squeeze of a trigger, what impact did that have on, on your mental health again? Now you are, you know, kind of, a few steps back all over again yeah with Khan I felt like I had I'd won mental health I was with him and even though I was struggling still I was with him and everything was great and as soon as his heart stopped um so did mine you know I was uh I I don't really like to kind of like make it sound similar to you know pets and German shepherds because Khan wasn't a pet, you know, he was this project which was meant to be going off into the wild and, you know, going on to to breed and, and have offspring and to go back into the ecosystem where he truly belonged. And uh, so there's something, I, I just cared about that so much, you know, and it was like, I have, I have two dogs here. I have a dog from Peru called Mika, my wife actually rescued her. And I have um, a rescue from California. She's a Doberman, uh, Olive. And, you know, I love them to pieces, but I I definitely didn't, I don't love them as much as I love Khan and Keanu. It's a really weird, it's, it's, it's a different love because the, this this love here that I have is, is a, a partner. They're gonna be with me until they die and or until I die, whoever goes first, um, and they're going to be there and I'm going to love them and support them and feed them and play with them and they're going to give me so much joy back. Whereas Khan and Keanu were wild animals that had been put in a really horrible predicament and it was my job to make them as wild as possible and to make them as ferocious as, as they possibly could so that they could go off and so that I could leave them and and let them go so that they could go on to do exactly what they were put on this planet to do. And so that love for them is different. Even though I love my dogs to pieces, I love them in a way which I just is so, is so completely, more, is so much more complex and, and hard. Um... But I, uh, I started cutting myself deeply. I started um, thinking about suicide every single day. Uh, I went to Australia and I was handling some of the world's most venomous snakes and I didn't give a crap because I was like, if I get bit, I get bit, whatever. I'll die, thank God. 
you know, do a Steve Irwin and kind of go out doing something you're passionate about. But I was, I was not well. I was, I thought that I had kind of like overcome some stuff, but uh, I had been put back uh, many, many, many steps in my progressive kind of path. And uh, yeah, I just didn't know what to do. Um, but something deep down inside me was uh, telling me to go back to the jungle. I had not finished what I needed to do there yet, and I didn't know why. But I was in Australia, and I had a I had a year visa to work there and to do all these things. So I worked there, but I only spent six months there because I was like, I can't do it. Like my mum was sick at the time, so I went home to see her for a few days, and then I flew straight back to the jungle. And I didn't know I had no plan. You know, I I had. I was terrified to go back because I was just so distraught and, and I didn't know what I was going to do in the same area that Khan had been killed. I was angry. I was hateful. I was sick. I was, I didn't give a crap about anyone else apart from me. Uh, that goes for, you know, the native communities and uh, the local people and the gringos in the area. Like, I didn't care what anyone thought about me. I didn't. I was just in the jungle, and I would go off for days and days and days, and just spend time in the jungle, fishing, catching fish, just like sitting around a fire, just like contemplating what I was doing. Why did your stomach tell you to come here? And I've always been a follower of my gut. Why did it tell you to come back here? Why? Like why? 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 And um, and uh, I bump into uh, Trevor who is one of the directors on Wildcat. And uh, he said, oh, I heard from, you know, Paul Rosalie that you've got a pretty cool story. And I was like, who are you? <laughs> I don't, you know, like he met me and I was like in my jacket because it was cold. There's a thing called free RH where cold weather comes in. I was like, who are you? Like, and he follows me on Instagram and I look on it and he's got like 400,000 followers and I'm like, who the hell is this dude? Like, I I don't care about him, like, whatever. He goes, I've heard some stuff. Can I please see some footage if you've got any? So I said, yeah, whatever. Like, what can it do to her? And he said, like, I want to make like a documentary in memory of Khan. Would you be open to that? And I was like, yeah, I guess we could do something along the lines, like whatever. And so like I showed him some stuff and he was like, crap, man, like this is some powerful footage. Um, we've got to try and figure it out. And so we were kind of in talks and we were going to talk about doing it. And then I was in the jungle again and I would, I'd just gone on this huge walk. And I think I'd seen like three or four different snakes and I'd seen some really cool stuff and I come back and there was like, there's another ocelot in the local community. And I just remember just breaking down and crying and just being like, this could be my opportunity to make sure Khan's life wasn't for nothing, you know, like, and so I, I was sick, you know, like mentally, physically, like I put everything that I possibly could into Keanu because I knew that I was doing what I did with Khan and it felt weird. It felt like Khan was my teacher and Khan's life was like this lesson to then teach Keanu what I had already learned. And I had, I didn't have to like go through the basic step by step 
manual. Like I went and I dove into it. I, I did anti-parasitic medicine. I was feeding him. We were walking. We were, we were hunting. We were like going out for hours and hours and hours and hours and, and, and just beating the crap out of the forest, you know, just like any mouse we saw, we would tag team it. I would either try and jump on it or smack it with my machete and he would go around one side of the log and I would run the other side and I would scare it into his paws and he would grab it and just rip its head off and we were just ripping the forest up. And it got to a point of where, you know, he was so healthy and, and it was coming up to the point of where he was almost going to be a year and I was getting petrified that he wasn't going to live, you know, like just reliving that memory over and over and over and over and over again, just in my head, like, what about if he doesn't make it? What about if he's not successful? Like, this is all about Keanu, but ultimately I want Khan to be present in this and I don't know how. And uh, yeah, and then I just, I just spent the next few months just filming absolutely everything I could, making sure that he was as healthy as possible, making sure that he was fearful of people, making sure that he was, you know, not super, super like injured after he'd come back from fights with different cats. And oh man, like I, I went full tilt. I was feral at the time. My wife's friends call me feral because when I came back from the jungle after doing the Keanu project, I was just like stick thin, just completely like deteriorated. My hair was just like an absolute mess. And you can kind of see it in the film, you know, and I'm like leaving and I'm just like, I just don't look good. Like I look like I'm physically exhausted. You know, I, um, I spent 674 days working with Keanu and out of them days I was illegal in – uh, Peru for 510 days and I in that 674 days I left to go to the city 16 times that's for that's days 16 days out of 674 days I spent I spent a long time in the forest I didn't need a watch anymore I knew the timings to a to a five minute interval I knew it from the sounds of the birds, from the from the the sun in the sky, from everything. I knew if there was an animal in the area because the monkeys would make a specific sound and they wouldn't make the sound that they would make when they saw me or they saw Keanu or they saw us together. It would be a different sound. So I knew that there was something over there and we would just, like I didn't use deodorant for, for years. I didn't um, use shower gels or anything like that. I I occasionally use some shampoo and I occasionally just use some soap, but usually it was just washing myself with water, eating what I could, getting back out, filming, doing absolutely everything because I needed. I didn't want this to just be a success. I needed this to be a success. This was my redemption. This was absolutely everything. And I, I did everything I possibly could. That was it. And when I was able to finally let him go, it was one of the absolute hardest things I've ever done in my life. So my, uh, my son is 16 at the moment, and he basically has about 18 months till he graduates high school and is probably going to go off to some sort of college somewhere. And so I'm kind of, 
in an adult world there now. Like my, my oldest is already gone. My youngest is, is going to be gone probably in, in this pe- time period. And you've poured everything into a child now for, in his case, you know, 16 and a half years, like everything. If you're trying to, you know, parent correctly. Um, and there is that there's on the one hand, like, I hope I prepared them properly. I'm excited for them. They're going to go out into the wide world. But on the other hand is that fear and what they did for you. You're going to be losing that thing, that, that you know, reciprocated, unconditional love that you get from a child um, most of the time. <laughs> um, yeah. So talk to me about that. How hard was it to finally let go? And then again, what did the following weeks and months look like after you know, it was a mission success, but you'd lost this beautiful creature, not lost, but you, you weren't present in this beautiful creature's life anymore because you had succeeded. Yeah. So I knew that in the next following weeks, I was going to have to leave to go home. Like there was only one way that I could do it. And it was, you know, just taking it day by day and then just having to just drop everything and leave because mentally I wasn't doing very well. Um, even though I was in this most beautiful place, like I, I was, I hadn't seen my family. Well, my family had come out to see me and you see that in the documentary, but I hadn't seen my family properly. I hadn't been home prop, you know, in a long time. I hadn't seen my friends in forever how long. And, uh, I knew that like for my, state of mind I had to kind of go home um and Keanu at this point was going off for five days and coming back and a little bit kind of like beaten and battered and weathered but it's the jungle he's gonna be and then we'd go out and we'd you know and he'd catch like big birds and big rodents and he'd eat them and then I would walk off into the forest and he'd go off and then I would come home and uh when I say home I mean to the platform and uh, he would then return maybe four, five, six, seven days later. And at this point, I'm just sitting there. I'm kind of, you know, like doing the same thing that I did after Afghanistan. I come back and I'm just kind of sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. Every sound, oh, oh is that Keanu? No, it's not. You know, it's just an armadillo or whatever. And, um, and so I knew for my sanity that he was going off and he was doing well and he was successful. In my head, he was already successful. I just had to then be like, when is the correct time to say goodbye? Um, because I need to. I need to for him. Uh, I need to for me. And I need to just be like, this project is done. He's a success. And so I, you know, like booked a ticket and um, and uh, was just ready to kind of leave. But at the same time, felt awful leaving him because what if? What if he needed me? What if he got sick? What if, you know, any of these things? And and so uh, I uh, I was just beating myself up and torturing myself because I was like, you know, he, he isn't, you know, like your kids hasn't got a, a phone and isn't able to just be contacted. Like when I leave him, I'm never going to see him again unless he's super, super sick and I get a message from Christian or, you know, someone and they're like, I think you need to come back and I was going to just, you know, I had money in my bank set aside in case when I went home, I needed to come back and I'd fly immediately. Like, it doesn't matter how much it's going to cost me, I'm getting back. But I knew that this was probably going to be the last time I was ever going to see him. And so letting go was an 
absolutely awful feeling. And um, coming home, I uh, in the documentary, you see that I surprised my family. They had no idea I was coming. And uh, it was this just really beautiful moment, you know, like I, I got to see my family and I surprised them. And like, I was just like, thank God, like I've done something and I should be proud of the thing that I've done. And, but New Year's, well, Christmas came around and New Year's came around and I just was struggling to fit back in. It was this like horrendous feeling of like, I'm back where I belong, you know, at home, but where I belonged was in the forest. And, uh, and I couldn't go back because I didn't want to get like trapped into that kind of like situation that I was trapped there before with, with Keanu and, you know, I didn't need to be there and I definitely didn't want to be there because of the people. And, um, and so I was like, right, you know, like, what am I going to do? And I was just like talking to, uh, Lexi at the time, who is now my wife. And she was helping me greatly through this process of transitioning from feral as hell to society. And then the pandemic, and then the pandemic happened and I was stuck in England for seven months and my, my mental health was just absolutely, it was just like, I just hate, I hated that. And as soon as I could, I found a loophole where I could fly to Ecuador for one week. And I flew to Ecuador and just stayed there for six months. And I just lived in the forest. I discovered a new species of frog. I was like helping a, a team called Tropical Herping. Uh, some of my really good friends with like research and I was taking cool photographs of cool animals and um, you know, seeing some really diverse parts and, and I fell in love with Ecuador. And, uh, and so me and my wife have now started a nonprofit called Emerald Arch. And, um, we are going to be in the next, you know, year or so buying land in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Uh, currently it's kind of a dangerous place to be kind of like looking, but ultimately anywhere in the world with, People is the dangerous place in the world, you know, and um, and with Emerald Arch, we want to protect land and we want to do projects similar to Khan and Keanu and we want to reintroduce potentially and, you know, if they need it, fingers crossed they don't need it, but rehabilitate and we want to work with, you know, local communities and we want to help spay and neuter, you know, domesticated dogs and cats in the area to stop issues with, you know, interfering with jungle ecosystems but the main goal and mission for emerald arch is to take veterans struggling with ptsd to the jungle because um if you're struggling with suicidal ideation and you're thinking about uh, ending your life and self-harming as a constant and um what you saw on tour or or just being kind of in a military kind of like career if you go to the jungle i know i know that like i'm one person in this whole world but i know that nature helps heal and i know that it helped me from killing myself so why can't i take people who also have a love for nature or who are also struggling to the jungle so that then they can kind of walk like a few steps in my shoes 
And I think that, you know, it's going to be a long road to get everything up and running. But I think once we do and we have like a few veteran retreats where people can come for a month and they can, you know, no phones, no laptops, no nothing. You're in the jungle, you go on hikes, you're doing scientific research, you can go fishing, you can do whatever the hell you want to do under supervision and with psychiatrists and, you know, because I went there just to do it. I didn't have no support. I want people to have that support where they can go, Harry, I'm not feeling great today. Do you mind if I take a day off um, from doing all these things? Um, And in that, you know, ultimately it's like, well, how are you feeling? Can we speak to someone like, are you feeling suicidal? Are you feeling sad? Are you just missing home? Uh, are you missing your family? Like, what is it? And and just take them, every person step by step as an individual, how they're feeling and just try and put them on a path to success in their own life. Well, firstly, I think that's incredible. The one question that I have when I was watching the documentary, you know, especially towards the end, um, and you mentioned about having counseling, which is beautiful. I mean, as far as the the understanding of you know community, of purpose, of time in nature, those are so obvious. And when we reflect now on what a lot of the governments told people to do during the pandemic, it was the polar opposite of what actually makes people heal. So I hope yeah. we will learn that lesson next time. But when we're talking about South America, an incredible healing modality that seems to have resurfaced from ancient wisdom to current first responders and military members are the psychedelics, the plant medicines out there. Were you ever exposed to them in in your journeys? Yeah, I I have done ayahuasca. Um, And so I was doing the Keanu Project and uh, I heard that there was like a group of people down river and uh so i went down and uh just happened to be the night that they were doing ayahuasca and uh they said do you want to join and i was like yeah like i i guess so um i had just gone through like a pretty traumatic experience the night before where i was actually reintroducing a monkey uh, it was a howler monkey and um his mum had been shot for me and he had been shot in the shoulder through her And so I was reintroducing this monkey and we were like climbing in the trees together. And uh, I came down and I said, Max, you've got to come down. Like it's dangerous up there without like a a group because, you know, monkeys are uh, group animals. And so he came down and I put him away. And then like he was crying and crying. He wanted to come out again. But obviously I was trying to do the Keanu project as well as this. So I went out with Keanu and I come back and, I let him out and he goes up in this tree and I, and he's not coming down. I go, right. Okay. I'll go get a banana that um, I've been growing. And so I went and got a banana and I went in and I just, cause I, just, I think I was making a cup of tea, you know, and, and I just see this shadow just come over and this harpy Eagle, the largest Eagle um, in the, in the jungle had just taken him from this tree. And he was screaming and screaming and I climbed this tree and I'm shaking and I'm like three meters away from this harp eagle. And I'm not joking you, the talons, these eagles take sloths out of trees. Their talons can go all the way around us. Like these, these talons are like inches long. 
and I'm a, and I'm and he's just like looking at me and he's just so angry and and Max is like falling down I'm trying to catch Max and I get him to the ground and and uh he yeah just um he ripped his spine so he was paralyzed um the puncture wound went through his lungs and um it's just nature you know like that that's what it is um he died in a natural way and so you know i i just even though i i get upset about thinking about it like it, it was a natural way that he died uh i you know obviously in their moments i'm trying my best to do something um i'm not a primate by any means i don't climb trees perfectly like I have some pretty fucked up toes, but it doesn't mean that, you know, I can just like walk up a tree and on a branch, you know, 30 feet up. And um, I felt so like, ah, oh, this is this is my fault, you know, like I felt horrible. And so when I went down, they said, do you want to do ayahuasca? I said, you know what, like whatever. Give me whatever just to forget about this. And I, oh man, it was crazy trip. Like, I, I have done mushrooms before, and I've smoked weed before, and, you know, I've done a few other drugs in my life, but this was, like, I drank one of the cups, and it tastes like, it tastes like you're drinking, like, a thicker Marmite, like, a thinner Marmite, sorry, like, it's kind of like a liquidy Marmite, Vegemite type thing, horrible, it tastes like crap. And I drank one cup and I'm like feeling my stomach going and I'm like, okay, you know, something's happening. And the shaman comes over and is talking to me and says, because apparently they'd heard about my story. Maybe because you've been in the jungle a long time, one cup isn't enough for you. Maybe you should take two because you're already part of the natural ecosystem. Like you have been here for so long. Maybe you should do two cups because clearly your body has just absorbed this and you're not going to get high and you're not going to have this healing experience. So I downed this second cup and I was sitting there and my stomach was kind of gargling and I was like, right, I'm going to vomit like this, this purge is about to happen. Um, and so I stood up and I went to go get some water and everything felt like it was rushing by me. And I went outside and I, got onto my knees and I put my knuckles on the ground and I just projectile vomited like all of this anger, hate. Um, it just was expelled out of my body and, uh, my knuckles are on the ground and I'm like eyes closed and I open my eyes and I'm like, where are my fingers? I thought my fingers are completely gone. And I was like, oh, no, because one of the biggest fears about being in Afghanistan was that I was going to lose a limb. So I'm petrified that my fingers have gone. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This can't be happening. Like, what is, like, have I just woken up? Like, what's going on? And then at the start of the Matrix, where it's like all the numerical zeros and ones and greens, I turn my hand around and it's just like, vroom, like running like the Matrix. And for the next seven hours, I was just in and out of some of the deepest trips I've ever had. At one point, I was like a hexagonal uh, kaleidoscope type spider, just going through the trees, just spinning webs. And then um, I was going through, you know, all these different, you know, experiences. And I didn't feel 
like I had achieved anything from this experience, but I definitely felt like I was definitely a little bit happier. And I walked off into the forest, which I wasn't allowed to do, but, you know, I was very good at just kind of like getting away and just walking barefoot wherever. And I just sat down and I just talked to Khan and I said, like, I love you, man. Like, I'm doing this for you. And I just absolutely am so sorry that this happened. And, and uh, I sang the Chris Isaac song Wicked Game to him as he was passing away. And I just remember sitting in the forest and just singing Wicked Game. Because, um, you know, the world was on fire and, you know, no one could save me but him. And, uh, like, just, yeah, just them lyrics really just mean a lot to me. And I have, like, I have... Um, Khan tattooed on my throat and it has like wicked game tattooed underneath uh, on top and yeah I just uh just sang it to him and that experience I think I was in like a hallucinogenic state for about six to seven hours and for about three to four days afterwards I was the happiest that I'd ever been um crazy and uh you know mushrooms as well have, have definitely helped me i microdose on mushrooms uh not daily but you know once or twice a week i'll have a few little bits and you know 0.2 milligram capsules and every now and again i'll do a little spring cleaning and i'll uh you know do like a gram and really trip some balls and then kind of like the last time i did trip out I was in eastern Washington and I was in this mountainous range and the trees were just speaking to me. Like they were just waving and the wind was just talking to me and it just like solidified everything that I was doing with Emerald Arch. Like keep saving us. Keep saving us, please. Like we believe in you. And really like, mate, oh, dude, it was weird, you know. It was like these – and then my friends were like, hey, Harry, we're going to go on a walk. And I'm like – dude the trees are speaking to me and they're like wow fuck we need to take more mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> uh but i've definitely had some kind of like psychedelic help um but i have not found that it has cured my mental health like a lot of people who have been struggling with ptsd have had some breakthroughs with whether it be ketamine whether it be mushrooms uh, or whether it be ayahuasca, like I know a lot of people have definitely felt the powers of that, um, but I have felt the powers of it um, briefly. Well, I'm glad I asked because, I mean, it, again, it's all these different perspectives. A lot of people I know were in crisis. They went and did, you know, ayahuasca, ibogaine, et cetera. And, you know, there's a lot of them that took multiple goes before they had breakthroughs. But even then, now you're processing what was in the closet. You know what I mean? So I think the more stories we heal, we excuse me, we hear, the more hope we infuse because the toolbox toolbox is so so large. And for you, clearly, one of the most healing things was simply being in nature and having purpose, like engaging with other beautiful animal souls and then you know going on the journey with them for others it was emdr and talk therapy that was all they needed you know for me clearly the canine element is a huge part of my journey so um just hearing this combination of all the things that you've talked about today i mean even watching your dad 
cry on your shoulder when you surprised him, you know, and the joy in your brother's face when you took him on the walks and he came back. So I didn't say much, just all these snakes and all these insects and all these animals, you know, these little moments. I mean, all these kind of factor into that jigsaw puzzle. So it's absolutely beautiful to hear. I want to make sure that people know where they can find Emerald Arch and support what you're doing there. So where's the best place online or social media for that? Yeah, so we do have an Instagram, um, which is just uh, Emerald period Arch, and then online uh, it's just www.emeraldarch.org. Um, they're the best places that you can kind of really find what we're going to be getting up to. This last year has been kind of a slow one, getting 501c3 status and, uh, you know, going through everything that goes with the IRS is obviously a pain Um but this year, and hopefully with my visa coming in and being able to travel, uh, buying land is the first the first hurdle, you know, so we're going to have to be fundraising for that. Um, but if anyone is a veteran or if anyone is struggling with PTSD, you don't have to have served. That is not, you know, anything that we want to, you know, if you, if you are struggling with your mental health, whether it be serving in the military, serving in the fire service, or, you know, just any first responder, or if you've just had childhood trauma, um, you know, whether that be abuse um, in any kind of way or PTSD from car accidents, whatever it is, if you are struggling and we have the land and we have everything in place, I want people to be able to just open up to Emerald Arch and myself because I've been there. This is the thing, you know, like when you go to psychiatrists and doctors, you don't know what they've been through. You don't know if you your story is going to relate to them. You don't know if opening up to them is going to help you in any way. But if you know that someone like myself has been in a place of darkness and in a place of absolute chaos, then you might be able to open up and feel a little bit more freer about trying nature and trying freedom as a healing, as a way of healing. Absolutely. Well, the film I know is playing on Amazon Prime right now. The film is called Wildcat. If people want to reach out to you specifically, aside from the nonprofit, where are the best places online and social media? Uh, yeah, so best place to reach out to me is usually just via my Instagram, which is just Harry underscore underscore Turner. Um, and I'm usually pretty good at getting back to people. After the documentary, I had, you know, quite a few people messaging me. Um, only a few assholes, which were like, you're an idiot, la, la, la. But a lot of them were really, really nice messages. And and uh, it really did encourage me to go on to more podcasts and to go on to more platforms. And it's, and it's encouraged me to write my book as well because I know that this film means a lot to me but it also has meant a lot to a lot of other people and it has made people um understand mental health in a way that they didn't before because it's so vulnerable and uh and so i will try and get back to people on instagram as quick as i can but usually that's the best way uh to to contact me well i just want to say thank you it's been an incredible conversation um I acknowledge the fact that when you're reliving some of the things, whether it was Khan, whether it was, you know, the Middle East, it takes a little piece of you. You're pulling the scab off the wound a little bit, but I think there's so much value to people hearing 
you know, the struggles and then seeing the hope on the other side and then, you know, the loss of Khan. But, um, you know, the the incredible story of Keanu and, you know, finding out that six months later he's still thriving and, you know, out there. Um, but this, again, like I said, the, this courageous vulnerability is what we need in 2024. This is what a you know, masculinity and femininity actually is. There's times where we have to be tough and there's times where we absolutely have to be compassionate with others and with ourselves so i want to thank you so so much for being not only as i said courageously vulnerable today but also so generous with your time thank you very much james i really do appreciate your time and this has been a great podcast